0: Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Dalwood, and I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we are paying our final visit to HP
1: Lovecraft's Shadow over Innsmouth, part five. But before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on?
2: I hear there's been ghostly goings on, or there soon will be.
1: Yes. Yeah, so in previous years, our good friend Mike Percival Maxwell has organised ghost story readings on the Good Friends Discord server, which you will have heard pop up as special episodes in the podcast feed after the event as well. This time, Mike has organised a reading of Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome, which is a series of ghostly anecdotes very much in the Christmas ghost story tradition. And we will have a full cast reading those on the Good Friends Discord server at 2230 GMT. I won't give you all the variants of that in your local time zone because I don't know where you are, but you can work it out. You're smart. And that will be on the 18th, 19th, and 20th of December,
2: 2023. So, Paul, I hear you've ventured to the wild
0: north again. (laughs) Well, yes, I got on the train and went to Manchester to Grogmeet, 2023. And, yeah, I had a great time there. I played... A bunch of games and i ran a game so i played paranoia which was fun as always i don't know why i say as always i don't play it very often i've played it like a few times in my life but uh, it last time it was probably in the 1980s
2: did you have the appropriate security
0: clearance to play the game though well I, I was red clearance which is you know it's not very high and and i must admit i was a member of the secret society shock <laughs> who'd have thought it
1: <laughs> <laughs> next thing you'll be saying you were a mutant as well You know, I don't think I was a mutant.
0: Oh, uh, actually, I think... Did I have powers? Oh, I was, actually. Yes, I um, (laughs) have done telepathic projection, which I did use to good effect at one point. Yes, yes. (sighs) And then I played uh, Vason and Dragonbane. And then in the afternoon, on the Saturday, I ran a new scenario of mine called A Dark Age, or at least that's what it's called at the moment, which should appear in Blasphemous Tome, Issue 12 next year we just mentioned mike mike percival maxwell he was there he was one of the players so it was nice to meet him along with uh some people who i only know by internet handles such as clown fist also craig and joe and annie williams and uh, yeah it was a lot of fun and then on the sunday morning dirk did an interview with mike mason and that should be going out on the grognard files podcast no doubt with a review of Grogmeat. And finally, I'd just like to say thanks very much to Dirk and Blythe for organising
1: a very fun convention. And speaking of conventions, Matt and I both, well, virtually attended the Illusion HorrorCon this weekend, just gone, and appeared on a handful of panels. In particular, we were on between us panels about designing compelling villains, about horror podcasting, and different subgenres of horror all of these were recorded and are now available on youtube i shall put a link in the show notes
2: and as we mentioned last episode it's finally coming it's here blasphemous tome 11 is on the horizon and it means that that should be sent out to everyone backing us at the five dollar level on patreon and above before the end of december
0: yeah so you've got till the end of december to back us to get a copy And now on to our main topic, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, Part 5.
2: Last episode, we left Robert Olmstead fleeing Innsmouth and its strange residence in the dead of night. Now it's time to deal with the aftermath. Exciting stuff. <laughs> it is exciting <laughs> stuff. Why do you say it like that? Oh, and now the aftermath. It's, we've had the big chase, we've had all the action, and now it's what happens afterwards.
1: Oh, well, this is kind of exciting too, I think. Yeah, this is what it's all been building towards. Yeah. This is chapter five. Gentle daylight rain awakens Robert Olmsted in the brush-grown railway cut where he had fainted the night before. There is no sign of his erstwhile pursuers and even their fishy odour has dissipated.
0: Still struggling to believe what he had witnessed, Olmsted knows he must get away from Innsmouth He starts down the muddy road, fighting weakness, hunger, and horror and bewilderment. Arriving in Rowley by the evening, he buys a meal and a change of clothes before catching the night train to Arkham. I mean, if you've just had a really bad experience, that's what you want to do, isn't it? Go to Arkham. Nothing bad ever happened there.
1: But from a gaming point of view, we've got him dealing with the the repercussions from the night before, and I wonder whether this is something that we play up enough in our games i guess i probably do sometimes but this whole thing of him after all this trauma of the night before and the running around and the sheer terror and so on and he's now physically weak he hasn't eaten anything for some time he's i mean as well as the sand loss he's clearly suffering physical effects from all this and Mm. just This traips across the countryside trying to reach civilization. That's the kind of thing I guess in a game I'd probably, much as Lovecraft does here, just mention in passing. Mm. But it occurs to me that you could probably get some meat in a game just out of maybe not putting it to a series of dice rolls or anything like that, but just at least acknowledging and playing up some of the the lingering effects of all this.
0: I think so. I think often we you read a scenario and it'll say, oh, maybe the players do this thing this evening, and then the next day maybe <laughs> yes. they do this thing, and you're like, no, because they're going to go straight off and do the other thing. I know they they're not going to say oh, we found something creepy. Let's all go to bed for the night and then wake (laughs) up the next day. I know that's not quite what you're talking about, Scott, but if the players can do the whole adventure in one day, they tend to do it all in one day. But also what you were just saying there about the the after effects of a traumatic experience like that. Mm. I think that occurs in Master and Alathotep. So I can can remember working on, I won't give spoilers, but obviously Master and Alathotep, big campaign, takes place in lots of countries. But one of the countries I worked on there is the prospect that or the or the likelihood that some massive Cthulhuid monster is going to turn up and it's like well mm. what do the players do cuz they can't f- well i mean they can they could run up and punch it but as in our guide to monsters that's not going to go well <laughs> it's not going to go well so in all likelihood what's going to, and there's hundreds of cultists there as well and they're probably all going to lose their shit when this when this massive thing turns up so I think what I just figured was well, let's just have a, a sort of a, a fallout. Really, you know, they make sanity rolls, and that kind of, in some way, influences the outcome. And mm. really, then you just fast forward to the next day or the next morning, and there's loads of dead bodies around. The investigators have survived, but you know how badly are they affected, and how do they pick up the pieces now? So it's not really about the the moment of the horror; it's more about the the aftermath because. In the moment, the Keeper can describe it, but there's not a lot the players can meaningfully do apart from try and run and hide. To me, that's a way to play that out, I think, sometimes.
1: Well, and also I don't think that's entirely down to the Keeper. I think as a player, this is a great role-playing opportunity that if your character has been through all this stuff and they are physically weak, they're they're just fighting to carry on then i think that's a great opportunity just for you to to play that up and get a bit of drama out of it
0: yeah and put it to the player like you know, well this is what you've seen how do you feel now what what's your character doing now how are they like mm. how are they going to carry on with their lives after witnessing this and just put it on them rather than telling them yeah absolutely
2: we have got that description of fighting, weakness, hunger, horror and bewilderment. That just sounds like 8.30 till 5.00 Monday to Friday for me. So I, I can very much empathise <laughs> with him there. The next day, Olmsted relays his story to government officials because they're going to believe him.
1: <laughs> well, they do. That's the whole point.
2: Well, <laughs> ironically, <laughs> you can tell this is fiction because like, the authorities never believe people. <laughs> yeah. He does there also this sometime later in Boston. And while in Markham... Um, Olmsted occupies himself with genealogical research that riveting subject as a cure for
0: insomnia
1: i think it very much gives him insomnia as we'll find out
0: oh my god i've just it just occurred to me you know that like the well it's not a particularly new trend but a fairly modern thing is sending off your dna to get it checked out Mm -hmm. i mean what do the authorities do when it you know it flags up certain genes certain deep one genes
1: I think I mentioned that as a, a possible plot hook in one of our brainstorming sessions in a, a previous episode. What twenty three and companies like that wouldn't make of deep one hybrids?
0: Yeah,
2: mm, fish, <laughs> fishy. The curator of the local historical society assists him and expresses unusual interest when Olmstead mentions that he is descended from Eliza Orne of Arkham.
1: The curator had previously helped Olmster's uncle research their family tree, and was intrigued by the apparent contradictions in the history of Eliza Orne. While she professed to be an orphan from New Hampshire, she knew little, at least according to her, of her family. An unknown guardian deposited funds in her bank account and paid for a governess. But the most baffling thing was the
0: inability of anyone to place the recorded parents of the young woman. Enoch and Lydia, Messerve Marsh, among the known families of New Hampshire. Possibly, many suggested, she was the natural daughter of some Marsh of prominence. She certainly had the true Marsh eyes. Most of the puzzling was done after her early death, which took place at the birth of my grandmother, her only child. Having formed some disagreeable impressions connected with the name of Marsh, I did not welcome the news that it belonged on my own ancestral tree, nor was I pleased by Mr Peabody's suggestion that I had the true marsh
1: eyes myself." Mm, which echoes what Zadok Allen told him a little while back.
2: Uh-oh. Hmm. Olmsted returns home to Toledo, Ohio, and spends some time recuperating. He busies himself with studies and other wholesome activities, But the occasional visit from government officials reminds him of his ordeal in Innsmouth. No matter how far away from the sea, you can't run away from it.
1: Well, it's very true. And this is a fair distance from the sea.
2: Ohio is renowned for its uh, lovely seaside coasts and beaches.
1: At the same time, Olmsted continues researching his family tree. He remembers his Arkham-born grandmother being terrifying and he did not grieve when she disappeared many years ago. She apparently wandered off in grief after her son shot himself following a trip to New England.
0: The rest of his family seems equally odd. With their large unblinking eyes and his cousin's institutionalisation at a local sanitarium, Olmstead begins to acquire a terror of his own ancestry, especially as he goes through old family photographs furnished by his uncle Walter there is something about the faces of his relatives
1: that inspires repulsion and alienation I'd say that the shadow of Rinsmouth is probably the purest expression in Lovecraft's fiction of his own personal fears Mm. and I think when we come to our summation at the end we'll possibly catalogue and revisit a few of those. But this seems to be a quintessentially Lovecraftian thing, this fear of what lies in your bloodlines, of what you've inherited from your parents. And as we've discussed when we're talking about Lovecraft himself before on the podcast, this was a very real fear of his because both his parents had been institutionalised for different reasons. Uh, His father had died in a sanitarium of syphilis and his mother had had severe mental health problems throughout her life and ended up, I think she was in a sanitarium when she died, wasn't she?
0: She was certainly ill for a while, yes. I think she did go into Into hospital or sanitarium yeah she was certainly not a well woman
1: yeah and so you can certainly see where this fear comes from and why lovecraft presents it this way in the story
0: yeah i mean you talk about things in the blood well i mean it's it's not just his parents is it it's his racism coming out combined with that you know Mm. those two things combined is like yeah well this really sums that up i think But the worst
2: shock comes when Uncle Walter reluctantly shows Olmstead his grandmother's jewellery, talking about the vague legends of bad luck surrounding them. As my uncle began slowly and begrudgingly to unwrap the things, he urged me not to be shocked by the strangeness and frequent hideousness of the designs. Artists and archaeologists who had seen them pronounced the workmanship superlatively and exotically exquisite, though no one seemed able to define their exact material or assign them to any specific art tradition. There were two armlets, a tiara and a kind of pectoral, the latter having in high relief certain figures of almost unbearable extravagance.
0: Yeah, so there again we have this reference to like the material being mysterious. I don't know, I don't yeah. really get that particularly. It's like i think we might have talked about this touched on this before but it's like they've got gold where is this other material coming from is it are we supposed to think it comes from space or that you know from from not from this planet like some sort of metal that we can't identify i don't quite understand what's i guess it's just the reinforces the i don't know the the strangeness or their alien nature
1: hmm or it could just be something that's only found in the depths of the ocean, and the residents of Yohannathalay mine it from down there and make yeah. these pieces out of it.
2: Mm, mm. They found a vein of an obtanium down there.
1: So have they got underwater forges? Well, I guess this jewelry is hammered. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, how they purify the gold and how they mix it with uh, yeah. other <laughs> materials to make amalgams. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, magic ball is magic. Okay, I got it. <laughs> and, and it just occurs to me, I don't remember ever having seen the word pectoral used as uh, a type of jewellery before. No. I guess, what, it's kind of breastplate or some some kind of a large pendant yeah i guess when olmstead finally sees the tiara he faints silently away exactly as he had done in the railway cut a year before from a gaming perspective that is very much the keeper saying right well you've rolled fainting on your of madness before that's clearly your character's thing you're having another bad madness mm. yeah, you just faint
0: I just looked up pectoral jewellery, and it seems like it's one of those really big necklaces right, uh, that okay. kind of covers the, you know, the, the upper chest. One point of armour. Pretty much. <laughs> From that day forwards, Olmsted's life becomes a nightmare of brooding and apprehension. He deduces that his grandmother was the daughter of Obed Marsh, whose marriage to an unsuspecting man in Arkham had been mentioned by Zadok Allen. Worse, Olmstead's own resemblance to the people of Innsmouth is growing harder to deny. Is this why his uncle killed himself after his ancestral quest in New England? Mm, could be.
2: Even with all this evidence, Olmstead clings to denial and for another two years. Then the dreams begin. Because it wouldn't be a Lovecraft story if there weren't crazy or maddening dreams.
0: Good old time moves on, though. Two years. Yeah, kind of you can't easily miss that.
1: They were very sparse and insidious at first, but increased in frequency and vividness as the weeks went by. Great watery spaces opened out before me and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls, with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, filling me with nameless horror the moment I awoke. But during the dreams they did not horrify me at all. I was one of them, wearing their unhuman trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their evil sea-bottom temples.
2: I love that phrase, nameless horror. That'd make a great title for a book, wouldn't it?
1: Yes. (laughs) I miss that praying monstrously at their evil sea-bottom temples. That's pretty cool. It is. But also, this is something Lovecraft does a lot in the story. I mean, he does it a lot in all his stories, but he does it here especially, which is he tells us that these temples are evil and that the praying is monstrous and so on, without really explaining why. And Mm. normally you might be able to just gloss over this, but considering where the story is heading and the turnaround that it makes, I wonder how much we can take that at face of value. Clearly, Olmsted is going through a lot when he, he's experiencing these dreams and They're reshaping his consciousness, and they're putting strange images, unwanted images, in his head that's an intrusion. And I can see how that would colour, particularly given his experiences in Innsmouth itself, his perception of them. But I wonder whether we can accept the fact that there's something inherently evil or monstrous about this.
0: Olmsted fears some frightful influence is seeking to drag him out of the sane world of wholesome life into the unnameable abysses of blackness and alienage. A nervous affliction grips him and his health fails until he is forced to adopt the static secluded life of an invalid.
2: At the same time, Olmsted notices the changes in his reflection. His father starts looking at him curiously and Olmsted wonders if he is beginning to resemble his grandmother or late uncle. Kind of shades of the, um, the outsider, in a way. Never look in a mirror. It's always bad for you.
1: The ending of this story, I think, brings in so much that rather than us just trying to summarise it, we're just going to read the last few paragraphs of this. One night I had a frightful dream in which I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces, with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate efflorescences, and welcomed me with a warmth that may have been sardonic. She had changed, as those who take to the water change, and told me that she had never died; instead. She had gone on to a, a spot her dead son had learned about and let into a realm whose wonders, destined for him as well, he had spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived since before man had ever walked the earth. Now, before we move on to the next bit, that's an interesting bit there. Those who had lived since before man had ever walked the Earth. Mm. That does very much suggest that the Deep Ones are something apart from humanity. We've speculated a few times through this story whether they're aliens or what they are. I mean, whether or not they're natural to Earth or whether they came from the stars. And I'm, I'm still mm. pretty sure there's a mention in one of the collaborations of the Deep Ones coming from the stars. They clearly have been around from before humanity was a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, they are not us. They are something very different.
0: That's a good catch there. For 80,000 years, Fathya Li had lived in Yohannathlae, and thither she had gone back after Obed Marsh was dead. Yohannathlae was not destroyed when the upper earth men shot death into the sea. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The Deep Ones would never be destroyed, even though the Paleogean magic of the forgotten Old Ones might sometimes check them. For the present, they would rest. But someday, if they remembered, they would rise again for the tribute great Cthulhu craved. It would be a city greater than Innsmouth next time. They had planned to spread, and they had brought up that which would help them but now they must wait once more for bringing the upper earth men's death i must do a penance but that would not be heavy this was the dream in which i saw a shoggoth for the first time and the sight set me awake in a frenzy of screaming that morning the mirror definitely told me i had acquired the innsmouth
1: look that paragraph is the first time we encounter the name the deep ones this far into the story this is the first mention we've had of the deep ones is it oh right is that the first time
0: they would named as yeah. deep ones oh wow that's amazing right i hadn't picked up on that but there's also all this stuff about you know he refers to the upper earth men mm. almost like a separate group he's it, almost like he's not part of them anymore yeah and he's had some punishment or he's going to have to do a penance yeah uh, for for having like grassed up insmouth to the authorities <laughs> but it won't be that bad he says yeah you know they're a kind of a, a benevolent forgiving species maybe maybe their um their criminal justice system isn't so bad
1: yeah i mean that is quite surprising i mm. I, I did make a note when i was thinking about the story earlier, and I hadn't clocked this bit before then, which is what kind of justice would Olmsted face when he got here, Hanfley? Mm. And yeah, here he is saying that it wouldn't be a heavy one. Considering that Deep Ones are immortal, and that he has had all these potential immortals wiped out in the Radon Insmith. I mean, that seems like a massive thing. I I guess we know they're pretty widespread, but still, I mean, that is mass murder. And while he didn't conduct it himself, he is responsible for it. And it just seems odd that they just sort of Mm. accept him.
0: Their ways are not ours. Mm. And there's all this stuff about the, the magic of the Great Old Ones, or the Old Ones, as he calls them, sometimes keeps
1: the deep ones in check what's that all about well that's the elder signs that we saw earlier those little stones with the swastika like symbols that's a bit weird yes
0: and then they're going to rise up in tribute to great cthulhu mm. and i take the word tribute there almost means
1: self-sacrifice uh well it doesn't have to be it could just be in worship or in support and it says they would rise up again for the tribute Great Cthulhu craved. It, mm. uh, it, it doesn't necessarily imply that they are the tribute. It could be that they're going to be his mm. servants upon Earth gathering the tribute of life or blood or whatever for him.
2: Yeah. I do like that reference of, as you touched on, the upper Earth men. Makes me think there must be a lower mm. earth men, that maybe that could be a veiled reference to the likes of the what we've seen in the outsider with this subterranean race, or maybe even looking back mm. to maybe things like Nakai and such these underground realms and civilizations that are dotted throughout the mythos.
1: You're not the first person to make that connection. We'll discuss it in the next episode, but both Paul and I have been reading some of Ruth Anna Emeris' stuff recently. And certainly in Tide, she makes this differentiation between these different races of humans. She, she places deep ones very much in, in the human realm. And there are the people of the water, there are the people of the air, and the people of the earth. The people of the air are us, the the, the humans living on the surface of the Earth. The people of the water are the Deep Ones, and the people of the Earth, the subterranean ones, are the people of Kinyan. There you go.
2: So far I have not shot myself as my Uncle Douglas did. I bought an automatic and almost took the step, but certain dreams deterred me. The tense extremes of horror are lessening, and I feel queerly drawn toward the unknown sea deeps instead of fearing them. I hear and do strange things in sleep and awake with a kind of exultation instead of terror. I do not believe I need to wait for the full change as most have waited. If I did, my father would probably shut me up in a sanitarium as my poor little cousin is shut up. Stupendous and unheard of splendors await me below and I shall seek them soon. Ea, rele, Cthulhu Fatagan ea, ea! No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself.
1: I shall plan my cousin's escape from that canton madhouse, and together we shall go to Marvel shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that brooding reef in the sea, and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many-columned Yohannath lay, and in that lair of the deep ones we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever the end and one end hmm. but not however the end of the episode we shall continue that after this short break have you visited our red bubble store we have t-shirts stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or
2: someone you know might like Check it out, just click on the merchandise link on our website, BlasphemousTones.com.
0: My name is Paul Fricker. My name is Mike Mason. And together, Mike and I have written and recorded a new show where you can hear chilling tales of horror. Join us, won't you, at eldritchstories.com. And remember, keep it Eldritch.
1: And now we continue with some overall thoughts about The Shadow of Rinsmouth. I absolutely love that ending. One of the things I like about it is how ambiguous it is. Mm. I've seen people argue passionately for this representing Olmster's descent into madness, that his mind has broken at the revelations of what he is and what awaits him under the sea, and this madness has led him to accept it. But also, I can very much see the interpretation, and I prefer the interpretation, personally, that this is a more genuine form of acceptance, that it's not born of madness, that it is him coming to terms with who and what he is. And I think that's a, a far more powerful thing.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I, that, that's how I read it. And it'll be to each person to have their own interpretation, of course. But that that's how I read it there was a, a little short essay about it at the start of The, the Tales Out of Innsmouth, the Chaosium mm. Collection of Fiction. So in the introduction by Robert M. Price, he questions the narrator because it's all written in an account from the start when the guy's writing the account, Olmsted is writing the account. He knows yeah, you know, it's, mm. it's written at the end, right? So even right at the start, he sort of says, you know, I'm going to have to make some dreadful decision. And mm. then he sort of, goes through slagging off the deep ones and saying how bad Innsmouth is and how dreadful it all is and then at the end we have this revelation so why is he casting it like that and I kind of thought well I went through and read it again and I don't think that is a a contradiction I think as you read it Mm. you know with that in mind when you read it again and you realize where Olmstead is going you read it again but he's sort of saying Back then, I thought this, and people told me this, mm. and this is how I felt at the time. I felt repulsed. But also, I wonder, and this is maybe just my interpretation, but I wonder if, if, if he's kind of like, I imagine him writing the whole of The Shadow of Rinsmouth, Olmstead, writing it all down as his account. And he's written all of that, and now, like, finally he's kind of woken up and he's had this final dream, and that's kind of when he writes this final kind of couple of paragraphs Mm. kind of like the final revelation is in in the moment not in a yeah a past account sort of thing so it's kind of more written in the present perhaps
1: yeah i think that's an entirely fair assessment because in the beginning he's talking about having to make that decision that terrible decision that awaits him Mm. and in the end he's made the decision that he's accepted it so yeah i think that's entirely fair and i've find myself thinking very much about this fate that awaits Olmsted this transformation and him going below the waves to this strange place to Yohannathley to live there forever and you know what it sounds pretty good to me really there's something about the way that this is presented that really for me brings home a lot of the ambiguity in the cthulhu mythos Mm. we've talked before about how it's a neutral thing but it's an alien thing it's something that's not human and i think particularly in the period in which lovecraft was writing perhaps less so in in genre fiction now but There is this automatic association between inhuman and wrong, that if something is not human, then it is to be shunned, it is to be feared— but here we have this acceptance of what I think might, in modern terms, be seen as transhumanism. This kind of stretching beyond human limitations and human boundaries. This stepping beyond our own mortality. And the Deep Ones, yeah, are not only eternal, but they can live on land and sea. They have greater ties to the secrets of the cosmos. They are, I think, in almost every conceivable way greater than us. And our revulsion at them comes from perhaps the fact that by our standards they look strange and arguably repulsive... But that is a superficial thing.
0: And I think through the story, you know, he's he's feeling that repulsion, isn't he? Mm. He's feeling that strangeness and repulsion. And I just love at the end that he realizes that he's kind of it's like he's liberated yeah. from all of that fear and because and, it's very sort of othering the whole story. It's yeah. like, you know, these people are other, these people are strange, and, and all of the um the witnesses, like the ticket clerk and the, the old lady at the museum and the boy at the shop and, and Zadok Allen as well himself, they're all they a bit unreliable narrators or witnesses, but they all kind of reinforce this. Yeah, the fact that at the end he is just freed from all of that. It's almost like, yeah, it's the story of him being freed from all that prejudice and, and hate. And he, he realises he's one of them and he takes it on. It's almost like a coming out story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I do wonder if anyone's ever done an LGBT reading of, of The Shadow of Rinsmouth. Seriously, because it's like you've seen all this internalised homophobia all the way through his encounters with what is fundamentally his community. And at the, the end, as he accepts it, he goes from seeing it as something repellent and abhorrent to something that he embraces and realises is his true self.
2: The thing that immediately eats to mind there is the, I mean, we're getting into adaptation territory. There is the film from, must be about 20-odd years ago now, Cthulhu, Mm. which is very much more Shadow of Rinsmith than it is about Call of Cthulhu. But that is seen through an an LGBT lens and is very much, the character has that arc that he goes through.
1: I'm not really sure that's the arc the protagonist of Cthulhu goes through. He's already out as gay if i remember correctly so it's not really a story about self-discovery or coming out but um maybe that's something we can get into when we discuss the film in our adaptations episode
0: but also i mean it's not like he just realizes that he is gay for example it's that a few weeks ago he like you know he's living in a society where in this paradigm he's living in a society where you know being gay is like a death sentence so he's he's pointed to the authorities and said there's a gay club over there and they've gone and burnt it down and arrested a load of people and beat them up and now he's living with that and he's real he's embraced that side of him that's that's the kind of parallel isn't
1: it oh absolutely yeah yeah he has instigated hate crime
0: in a way that is part of the horror of the story you know he's realized that is inner nature, and he's also realising, shit, I've just persecuted, or caused, led to the persecution of a load of my
1: people. This has made me realise how much I would really like a follow-up story of Robert Olmsted having arrived in the Lay trying to make amends for what's happened. Hmm. The penance of Olmstead. Hmm.
2: That suddenly makes me think why the rest of Deep One society might be forgiving for him to say, oh, it's just going to be a light slap on the wrist and nothing particularly severe, is that he has embraced that heritage and he has become one of them. He could be very much like his relative Mm. that just shoots himself and then they don't get another Deep One. That there's maybe that worry that if you do go down that route, it's just going to be death, punishment, more severe than what's on the surface maybe it's the fact that no congrats brother you're one of us that that's seen as that he has made an even bigger leap and something that should be celebrated rather than oh you're one of us and now we're going to punish the hell out of you
1: well also there's the fact that he didn't grow up in his own society that he grew up not knowing what he was that he grew up outside in and didn't realize who he really was and the people of Innsmouth had the benefit of knowing who they were, of having that society, of being taught what was awaiting them, of being taught who they truly were. And Olmsted has blundered into all this, and maybe he's not the first one who's brought in trouble from outside by being drawn back to the community with an incomplete or misunderstanding of, of what he is and, and what he's part of.
0: Also, it's him saying, for bringing the upper earth men's death, I must do a penance. But that would not be very heavy. Well, you know what? Maybe it will be. Because <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what... Oh, we want you to come down here. We've summoned you in your dreams. Won't you punish me? No, no, no. It'll be fine. You're going to live forever. You can spend the next thousand years, you know, being tortured. But <laughs> that's nothing, is it?
1: Yeah, it's only time. Yeah,
0: you'll soon get over it. Who knows what the actual punishment is, is my point, you know. Yes. Uh, Yeah, is is that actually true? I think it's worth considering the end of this story and how it could have been, because only that final paragraph. What if it had said, no, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. Instead of that, it's like, and now I sit here with the the pistol. Uh, I know they're coming for me. I'm loading a shell into the chamber. Goodbye
2: the window the window
0: exactly that's more like a lovecraft ending isn't it that's more what all through we we're, we're given not heavy-handed hints but fairly subtle hints to start with i think that there's something odd about him and then as it as it goes on it becomes clear oh okay we can see where we're going now he's looking at his genealogy and so on it's flagged up to us where it's going which is which is a good thing it's not a bad thing but the actual destination is not flagged up to me at all and that was a a big mm. surprise, I think, when I first read it. And yeah. uh, and if we compare it with the story Facts Concerning the Late Arthur German and His Family, another one by, by Lovecraft, where the reveal is kind of similar. You know, mm. there's this character, German, who the horror is one of their ancestors was like, well, what? An ape in the story. Yeah. But I think the meaning is pretty clear. Yeah. But that's just taken as outright horror. There's no redemptive sort of end to that that's a very different ending so i'm kind of my point is i think i'm surprised by this ending it's not the ending that i would have expected lovecraft put
1: well this was a relatively late period sorry for lovecraft he wrote this in what 1931 so Hmm. this was after he'd written a lot of the stories that we consider to be deeply racist Even The Call of Cthulhu, which has got some pretty uncomfortably racist stuff. And his later stories, I'd say, have got this evolution in them where he goes from looking at the other as something wholly to be shunned and feared and inherently repulsive to... The Matters of Madness, where he's got the old ones, they were men, where he's got mm, all the sympathy mm. towards the Yithians and the shadow out of time, where here he's got the acceptance of the the Deep Ones. And it it feels like this is a man who's maturing and his, uh, looking back at perhaps his prejudices of the past and thinking, maybe not having an outright revelation, but at least questioning his own prejudices. Maybe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think he ever relinquished his racist views, but there is certainly, in those stories, in his creations, there seems to be a questioning of that, whether he was even conscious of that. But like you say, that thing, they were men, and this thing of the Deep Ones being a parallel to, well, a a civilization. they're definitely given the ending is much more charitable than saying that, you know, they're monsters. I mean, there is, of course, this other interpretation that the ending is the true horror Hmm. because, you know, I'm a good uh, white middle-class man and, oh my God, I've been subverted and uh, I've been taken down by the monster. Well, somebody like me has been taken down by the monsters into the bottom of the ocean. That's the greatest horror, that he was sort of converted. But I don't don't really buy that.
1: I've certainly encountered people commenting before that they thought Lovecraft's attitudes towards race were changing as he, he got older. Hmm. And I did have a discussion with uh, Heather Poirier about this on Discord a while back, and she very kindly, because she was in correspondence with ST Joshi about other stuff, asked Joshi uh, about this on, on my behalf. And Joshi wrote back to her with a, a few comments. I'll, I'll just read a couple of them out. Sure. He gave a few examples of Lovecraft writing about people of other races in positive ways. And the the two that stood out here were Lovecraft's transformation from political conservatism to moderate socialism is in itself a partial repudiation of many of his earlier socio-political views. In early 1937, he stated in regard to a wide array of right-wing and pro-Nazi organisations, granting the scant possibility of a Franco-like revolt of the Hoovers and Mellons and polite bankers, and conceding that... Despite Kofnanism, the Black Legion, the Silver Shirts and the KKK, the soil of America is hardly very fertile for any variant of Nazism. It seems likely that the day of free and easy plutocracy in the United States is over. That was in 1937 in a letter to C or more. Hmm. And then the other example was Harry Probst, was one of Lovecraft's closest friends during the 1930s. He saw him on an almost daily basis during the period 1932 to 1937 in Providence. He tells of how a neighbour of Lovecraft's, Alice Shepard, had gone to Germany for a visit in the summer of 1936, and when she told Lovecraft and his aunt Annie Gamwell of the dreadful way that Jewish people were being treated, Lovecraft and Annie were appalled. Hmm. This may not be much to go on, says Joshi, but it's something. Generally speaking, I think Lovecraft just became less interested in the subject of race in his later years, as more pressing socioeconomic concerns, particularly the bane of unfettered capitalism, took precedence in his thought. Yeah. I don't know if this change of focus in his politics then perhaps opened the way for him having these more compassionate interpretations, or at least these more open-minded interpretations of the other in his later fiction. But at the same time, this could be reading entirely too much into The Shadow of Rinsmith. I mean, it could be that this was him working through a lot of his his fears of race mixing, or what he considers to be race mixing, and where, I say we, I'm giving him too much of the benefit of the doubt in how it's being presented.
0: Well, I was wondering about this. I mean, it's because it's the way it's presented. Yes, it deals with issues to which people in the story object, intermarriage and racial issues and so on, that there's clearly racism in the story. But is it putting forward the argument that we should be racist it's like mm. you know if we think of like well there's loads of vietnam war films are they all saying the vietnam war was a good thing it's not as simple as that is it you can portray a, a subject without promoting it yeah i was thinking what's a good example of a story that is there to sort of um not teach a lesson but to have a moral one well, 1984 by george Orwell, right Mm-hmm which is a, you know, definitely a sort of cautionary tale of against totalitarian state control. And what happens at the end? I love Big Brother. I love Big Brother. He, he, he has that turnaround. So it's kind of, maybe you can even make a comparison with Shadow of Rinsmouth. You know, we've got this tale all the way through and then the final paragraph, well, it's debatable, isn't it? It mm. kind of turns it on his head or it's a big twist at the end where the, the main character flips if you like but in 1984 it's about the the evils of state control uh and, and all that big brother stands for and, and the state and everything and and we agree as readers that's dreadful i mean unless you're i don't know Jake caprice Smog or somebody and you read it as a happy story <laughs> yeah it turns out happy in the end because yeah <laughs> and equally with shadow rinsmouth we read it and we can see that, you know, there are sort of dreadful monsters here, and, and but, but we're, you know, we're questioning what's going on. But it's not, I don't think it's persuading us that these people are bad, but we're witnessing, well, that the deep ones are bad necessarily, but it's it, we're witnessing people saying that. But at the end, Winston, we can see, is broken. Mm. He's no longer himself. He is a broken man, and that's a tragedy. But at the end of Shadow of Rinsmouth, Armstead flips... And it's more like, I don't know, self actualization It's more like he's become his ultimate self. It's a joyous story. It's a story of... Self-discovery. Yeah, to me. Um, So it's kind of a parallel, but it kind of highlights the differences, if
1: anything. But also, I wonder how much modern interpretations of The Shadow of Rinsmith are shaped by world events that followed. When Lovecraft wrote this story, this was before the rise of the Nazis to power in Germany. I mean, fascism was a thing at the time, but it perhaps hadn't shaped the 20th century in the way that we think now. And, I mean, right-wing populism and the xenophobia it draws upon have always been part of human civilization, but I I think we're more aware of them now than... Or at least we're, we're more... Literate as far as how they're presented in media, than perhaps readers of Lovecraft's time were. Maybe. I don't know whether it's the intention that Lovecraft had, but I think modern events have maybe even inadvertently turned the shadow of Rinsmith into, I think, quite a powerful story about where othering can take us. Because Mm. dehumanisation is a vital part of fascist propaganda. If you are going to stoke the Mm. fires of xenophobia, you have to make your populace think that people who aren't like them are less than human. We saw this happen in Nazi Germany where Jewish people were described as rats, as, as vermin. We see it now with right-wing populists who describe invasions and infestations of refugees and talk about them in terms of natural catastrophes like hurricanes.
0: Yeah, it never goes away, does it?
1: Yeah, and this is all dehumanization. And this is exactly what we see in The Shadow of Innsmouth, that the people around Innsmouth at least initially see the people of Innsmouth as being very strange and horrible they are repellent but once that becomes known to the authorities at large that perceived inhumanity of them makes it very easy to then commit genocide to go in to Mm blow up the town to take people off to concentration camps and even the do-gooders who then visit the camps afterwards to check on the well-being are so repelled by what they see there that they're suddenly like oh yeah okay yeah no no genocide's fine in this case
0: yeah yeah they were like oh no we don't want these people locked up in camps that's that's in you oh wait what the hell yeah <laughs> no keep them yeah it, is, it does i mean that's a I think a, a clever stroke by Lovecraft at the start of the story to mm. you know, reinforces it by saying those those people go and visit the internment camps, the concentration camps, and uh, they don't seem to have too many problems after that. Yeah. I think the story is greatly coloured by Lovecraft, by knowledge of Lovecraft's racist views yeah. and political views. I think if you know nothing about Lovecraft and you come to the story, I think... You perhaps come away with a different feel for it. You know, I think because it's easy to read it as very much a reinforcement of his opinions apart from the end. And then the end, you get to the end and you're like, oh, bloody hell. Yeah, I don't know. You know, when you just read the work on its own. I mean, I, I might, what I would ask is, could this story have been written by somebody who didn't hold racist views?
1: This is something that I keep going back to with Lovecraft. And I've probably mentioned it on the podcast before, but I had an uncomfortable revelation some years back that one of the things that makes Lovecraft such an effective horror writer is the fact that he's a racist and a xenophobe and the fact that he was informed by all these fears of the other, of people who weren't like him, who people who didn't look like him, who didn't think like him. And what he does by then reframing that in terms of the inhuman is then allows us to share or at least to tap into that same fear of the other. Mm. Even if you're not necessarily a xenophobe or a bigot yourself, he allows you to vicariously experience that feeling of xenophobic fear in a way that makes it understandable and that is very effective from the point of view of horror but i don't like the way that makes me feel
0: but i would say in this story racism i would say is based on fear Hmm. and it's almost like he's distilled that fear out of that and put it into this it's almost like he's just taken the fear and it manifests through the story and we see the, the portrayal of racism and othering in the story. But I'm not sure it's... Some of his other stories definitely have more negative portrayals than than we see in this, I feel. yeah, It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's a difficult thing to talk mm. about. But I feel like the ending really turns this around and it really kind of almost... you You get the fear and we can all feel fear as an abstract fear of something and we feel it in this story we feel the people's fear we feel some of the fear because you know there are monsters running through the town Mm. but at the end we get this reversal and we're like oh my god actually you know what that
1: sounds pretty cool yeah i wish i was one of them but also this idea of the deep ones as monsters Yeah, they look monstrous, they have fish-like features, they have frog-like features, they smell awful, they hop, They, they croak, they bay, but I was thinking very much about this, that beyond the physical aspects, that there is nothing necessarily monstrous about them that isn't monstrous in humanity as well, because... Yes, all right, there's the whole esoteric order of Dagon, and there's the way that the Deep Ones came up from the sea and took over Smith in a very bloody bit of ethnic cleansing. But... If we look at it from the point of view of, you could retell The Shadow of Rinsmouth almost exactly without any monsters in it. You could have it as being a story of a town under the control of a cult, that there is some kind of conflict between two ethnic or two two social groups, and that one displaces the other, that there is this cult at the centre of it, and, and, and... Yeah, I mean, it would obviously have a very different flavour and superficially be very different. But the core themes, I think, would be very similar. I don't agree. I don't think there's anything about the Deep Ones inherently, barring what we see about them at the end, that makes them not human. Yeah, but they're not human, are they? That's the point. I'm talking about what they mean in the story what they represent i I don't think i'll see whether i can explain this better i don't think there's any of the the monstrous attributes that are assigned to the deep ones that are in themselves inhuman apart from their appearance and apart from their longevity I don't think there's anything about their attitudes and their beliefs, about the way they act, about the way they take over Innsmouth. I don't think there's anything there that we haven't seen in human history. Um, I mean, fundamentally, it's a story about colonisation.
0: I think there's certainly a parallel, but I think, I think it's, it would be a very different story if you translated it and said, actually, these are another ethnic group.
1: It's clear that we've got a lot more to talk about with analysing the story itself, even before we get onto the gaming aspects of it and the, the countless adaptations and sequels that it spawned. And so, we're going to wrap this discussion up here for this episode, and we'll come back next time to continue our discussion of the, the themes of the story itself and see where that takes us.
2: Maybe down to Yohannathley. You never know. You're listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
1: Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name.
0: Starting off with a thanks to AKA Snowman. <laughs> and yes, it is spelt like that.
2: And also thank you to the uh, much more easily pronounceable Jeremy Sparhawk.
1: And thank you to David Brightman.
0: And thanks to Alex Garrick Wright. And also thank you very much to Bastian
1: Sanders. And thank you finally to Ike Habert. Now, I've almost certainly mangled your name there, for which I apologize. And if we have mangled any of the other ones, please do let us know, and we will be more than happy to have another go at them and try to get them right. Like Robert Olmsted, we are always happy to make amends, and with any like the amends we make will also be similarly light.
2: We might even try and say them again underwater. So you might hear just glub, 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 glub.
1: <laughs> And
0: I think it's worth pointing out that Patreon now takes free followers. So you can uh, go over to patreon.com slash good friends of Jackson Elias. And you can follow us on uh, Patreon for free if you wish. We should uh, start putting up some material for free followers on there. Because, uh, yeah, we've got a, a whole bunch of people
1: doing just that. If you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you'd let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews might be found, like down at the lightless depths of Yohannath Leigh, or just letting like-minded people know about it in socially acceptable ways. Whatever it is, we, we would love it if you did so.
0: Okay, well, uh, that wraps up episode five of The Shadow Over Innsmouth hope you've enjoyed it we've got to the end but we've got a bit more to come with adaptations and so forth and until then we're going to leave you with something that retells this whole story in about three minutes and does a much better job than we do it's beginning to look a lot like fishmen from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society and it's also you know a Christmassy tune so uh, enjoy so it's a goodbye from me and cheerio from me and a farewell from me
3: it's beginning to look a lot like fishmen everywhere I go From the minute I got to town and started to look around I thought these ill-bred people's gill slits showed I'm beginning to hear a lot of fishmen right outside my door As I try to escape in fright to the moonlit with night I can hear some more They speak with guttural croaks, and to hear them provokes a profound desire to flee. Their eyes never blink, and quite frankly, they stink like a carcass washed up from the sea. I wish I'd paid attention to that crazy drunken man. He tried to warn me all about Old Marsh's Deep One clan. It's beginning to look a lot like fishmen. Everywhere I go, they can dynamite devil reef. But that'll bring no relief. Your honey is deeper than they know. I'll continue to see a lot of fishmen. That I guarantee. For the fishman I really fear is the one who's in the mirror. And he looks like me. He looks just like me.